Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Maybe Wilco's Jeff Tweedy said it best in the song The Late Greats. The best song, he says, will never get sung. The best life never leave your lungs. Recently, our discussions here on Weird Studies touched on the stoic idea that certain realities can be without really existing. In art, there are works that are legendary precisely because they were never made. Think, for example, of Alejandro Jodorowsky's cinematic adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, as shown in the documentary dedicated to that Herculean, not to say Sisyphean, effort. The non-existence of Jodorowsky's masterwork doesn't in any way limit its power to effect. On the contrary, it can be argued, and this is the message of the documentary, that Jodorowsky's Dune influenced science fiction filmmaking every bit as much as 2001: A Space Odyssey or Star Wars did albeit in a harder-to-quantify, more subterranean fashion. Some things are all the more powerful for never having existed, that is, for being incorporeal. This episode isn't about Jodorowsky, but about the American science fiction author Philip K. Dick, whose work we first explored all the way back in episode 10, Adrift in the Multiverse. The Owl in Daylight, Dick's final and finally aborted literary effort, is another example of a book that doesn't need to exist in order to be. Dick left enough traces and sketches of his would-be magnum opus for us to almost see it. This episode of Weird Studies has us dissecting a literary ghost that haunts Dick's body of work and finding much hidden within to puzzle over. Stories within stories, worlds within worlds, concepts that can't be thought, music that can't be heard... Basically, with this project, Dick was trying to push his philosophical ideas to their very limit, to the point where the wax wings melt and Icarus comes tumbling down, and we gawkers on the ground get to realize that when up and down lose their meaning, there's no difference anymore between falling and flying. I wish I could be more straightforward with you here. You'll just have to listen on to know what I mean. And in case you're hungry for more afterwards, I'm working on a short essay expanding on some of the ideas you're about to hear us discuss. That essay will be available next week on the Weird Studies Patreon, where it can be enjoyed by hundreds of listeners who have chosen to help us by contributing three or six dollars a month to our own Herculean slash Sisyphean effort. For the price of an espresso or a latte, you too can contribute to our project and get access to essays and bonus episodes released every other week. And don't see it as charity. See it rather as an investment. An investment in all the future episodes we couldn't make without your help, And also, most importantly, in all the shows we will never get to record, but that you may dig most of all. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So, 
What's the most abstract form of art that we could imagine? Music. Uh, imagine something even more abstract. So think about whatever it is about music that we say is abstract. And Philip K. Dick, in the uh, anthology of um, final interviews with him, What If Our World Is There Heaven by Gwen Lee, in that book, he talks about music as the most abstract art form. Quoting Schopenhauer. Yeah. Right. So what makes music, what, when we say that music is abstract, what do we mean? And so I was thinking about this. Could you push the abstraction that music represents further and into the realm, you know, maybe into the realm of fantasy where we're talking about things that aren't possible or at least not regularly possible? Um, mathematics. Isn't mathematics uh -huh. the kind of pure abstract art? Pure number. Mm. But then, of course, yeah. you're in murky territory aesthetically because some would argue that mathematics is not a fine art. But some would say that it is. But yes. Yeah. Anyways, where were you going? Well, I mean, even mathematics is expressed in some kind of figure, in numbers, right? And music, as abstract as it is, is expressed in sound. Perhaps the most abstract form of art I could imagine not an art form that really exists, would be patterns of thought without reference, just the abstract patterns of thoughts, sensations, emotions, etc., such as are enjoyed in meditation. In fact, I've heard meditation referred to as inner music. Mm. And I have noticed over the years that a lot of meditators are musicians and a lot of musicians are meditators. There's a certain affinity between music and meditation. Now, in my hypothetical of patterns of thoughts and emotions, etc., as they're experienced in the flow of meditation, it would be hard to call that art, because without some sort of telepathy, such patterns would be incommunicable. And if we're talking about art, surely we're talking about something that in the main is capable of conveying something from one human subjectivity to another. That seems to be a fairly essential part of art. So meditation isn't an art in that sense. But now, I call back to Meditations on the Tarot Guide, the anonymous author of that, where he says that all magic comes down to the subtle ruling the gross. The more ethereal, imaginal planes, actions taken upon those planes that affect the gross material plane that we are accustomed to thinking of as reality. We're talking about subtlety here. We were talking about the maximum subtlety where there's no material stratum at all except your own mind, I suppose, or your brain. But of course, we don't want to make the philosophical error of conflating brain and mind. But if we are think going a little bit further down from a kind of pure abstraction, the unmanifest to the manifest, from subtle to gross, from idea to material, what's next? And that might be sound. And by the medium of sound, those thoughts, sensations, and feelings can make perceptible traces. And so music is, it's sometimes people will use the expression, it's like a thought painting. Like you're painting, but you're painting with thoughts. And sound is this like subtle, ethereal way that thoughts can be conveyed. Now, imagine that you could do the same thing with smells. Another part of the human sensorium. Like imagine an art form that's sort of like music, but instead of sound registering 
the motions of thought and so on, you have smells doing that, right? So imagine that smell could be patterned in such complex ways as to suggest extraordinarily specific feelings. Well, that's what perfume design is. Yeah, but then imagine a, like a moody high schooler saying perfume saved my life, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, we always say, like, music saved my life. I, right. I say that music saved, not saved my life exactly, but, like, music saved me from a a lot of bad things in life, put it that way. And yet it's hard to imagine that kind of intense feeling of meaningfulness, like the feeling that music matters so much. It's kind of hard to imagine some equivalent art of pattern smells doing the same thing. It's a bizarre notion that makes the true weirdness of music actually more comprehensible. Why music always seems like a kind of a miracle, that it is this way of transmitting what's on the inside to the outside in the most ethereal and next to immaterial sort of medium possible. And yet somehow in doing that, it conveys intense feelings and ideas and sensations, yet at the same time, like completely evading any specificity. Any figuration. Any figuration. Right. And so this thought experiment of like the art of smells allows us to understand one of Philip K. Dick's main points in this long interview that he did with Gwen Lee, where he discusses his last novel, a novel he never completed. And so we're left only with sketches, the sketches for this novel minus the novel. And in this interview where he's talking about this last uncompleted novel, The Owl in Daylight... He's making a point that's really important to him, that's absolutely at the center of the idea of this novel that he's beginning to write. And this is the idea that music does not exist in the notes. It doesn't exist really, ultimately, in the sounds. That it's, as he says, conceptual. That it exists in the mind. Now, the art of smells that I've described where people are like, yeah, man, perfume saved my life. Not only does that not exist, it couldn't. Because while we could at least theoretically register a complex succession and simultaneity of smells in our senses in the way that we register a complex succession and simultaneity of sounds and music, in smell, those complex sensations would not cohere into those definite impressions that could be so life-altering in music. And so when PKD is talking about the central conceit that he wants to develop in the Allen Daylight, which is the idea of an alien species that wants to experience music, that they're like aliens that exist in little bubbles of personal atmosphere, but the planet they live on has no shared atmosphere, and so they're incapable of transmitting no sound. sounds. And so, right. Yeah, so they're deaf and mute, and their art is predicated on color. They have an unbelievable sense of vision and subtlety of registering color, so all of their arts are patterned colors, right? But Philip K. Dick likes to imagine that for the mystics of this alien species, music is something that they can sometimes apprehend, but they have no words for what it is, and they want to experience it. So his idea is a species that doesn't have music, how would they experience it? And he plays with the idea that, well, you know, maybe you could transduce, mechanically transduce melodies, you know, notes into some kind of equivalent 
sensory visual, pattern. Yeah. yeah, the visual. Right. He's like, but that wouldn't do it because music is conceptual, that you would be able to have all of these patterns registering, but they wouldn't register as music. And so what the mystics of this alien species are after is not just sound, but that human faculty for arranging those sounds, for having those sounds mean something. And that's that faculty that he is really trying to wrestle to the ground. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about like this kind of abstraction and mystery in music. And I wanted to start with that because I think that that is, if not the most important idea he's playing with, is one of the most important ideas. And needless to say, I find it interesting because to me it throws a really interesting light on what it is that makes music so fundamentally weird. A, a certain kind of weirdness that belongs to music precisely by virtue of being music. Not like, oh, this is a weird piece of music, but this other piece of music isn't so weird. There's a radical weirdness to music that Philip K. Dick was trying to wrestle to the ground mm -hmm. in thinking through this last uncomplete novel. I think ultimately... The weirdness that you're pointing to in music exists also in other media. It's just that it's maybe easier to see with music precisely because music is so fundamentally abstract. Because you could make the same argument that color exists only conceptually. Yeah, absolutely. Because color, according to the model, the prevailing model of our day, color doesn't exist in itself. It is created by the brain as a reaction to light. And so you could make the same argument there, but with music, it's just so like music is weird because it has no figuration. So you always have to wonder, why am I feeling this when I'm not being yeah. told a story? I'm not being shown a picture. How can yeah. this be sad? It's just sound. It's just weird. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, and uh, not just sad in the sense that like if I'm watching the TV and I see, a, I don't know, a story about a cop killed in the line of duty and his wife and kids are now without a husband and a father. And I'm like, that's very sad. I can really feel something watching that, right? But it's a representation of a sad thing. But with music, it's just, it's... Uh, Sadness without object. Yeah. And as such, more intimate. It kind of almost feels like something reaching into your skull and pushing the buttons. Like, you don't just entertain a notion of sadness, you feel it. It takes you over. You become a different person when you listen to sad music. Yeah. Yeah. It transforms you because the whole thing seems to be happening within you. It's very easy, I find, especially with visual art. You go to a gallery, you're looking at paintings. The division between yourself and the painting, the fact that you can't touch the things in the painting is evidently blindingly obvious to you. Like the, right. the medium itself is constantly emphasizing the separation of things in visual art. A sculpture is an object. It is not you. With music, it's not an object that's not you. It's all inside you. Um, yeah. And so when you're listening to music, and that maybe this is one of the reasons why music is so fundamentally powerful at doing what I would argue all the other arts do, it's just in a different, in a way that's more occluded perhaps, is that as you're immersed in a musical experience, you and the music are inseparable from one another. You yes. are, in a sense, the music. But I think the lesson to learn there is that there's something wrong with the way we interpret the world. That in fact... Yes, absolutely. Um, music is telling us something about the primacy of what 
Locke call the secondary qualities. Descartes was the first one to really point this out. He's like, the fire is real, but the heat of the fire is not real in the same sense as the, whatever the fire is. Like there's, the heat is just a relative thing for me. And that goes against the way people thought before Descartes, which is that the fire is fundamentally in its essence, hot. Right. There's a, a philosophy that I've been kind of building in my mind slowly, and maybe one day I'll be able to put some of this into writing somehow, or maybe be able to talk about it. I've talked to you about it a few times. I'm calling it elementalism, which is a way of, without abdicating modernity, arguing once more for the primacy of secondary qualities, arguing once more that there's something fundamentally hot about fire and that sound, even though we can trace the causation of sound to things that are not fundamentally or, or essentially sonic, that it's just mm -hmm. vibrations in the air molecules that creates the... Right. I think there's a way of saying that, no, nevertheless, those things exist only in order to produce sound, which is the primary reality. So mm -hmm. now we're getting, we're in the metaphysical terrain. But the thing is that I, I never like it when people say, well, music doesn't really exist, you know. It's just in your ears that it's created. I, I just don't like that. I just, I think it misses mm -hmm. the point of what's going on mm -hmm. with music. I think music is telling us precisely the opposite, that even the deepest emotions can exist without any humans to feel them, weirdly. Mm -hmm. uh, in one essay I mm -hmm. wrote a long time ago, I said that, even if there was no one left on earth, as long as there's some phonograph in the runes playing, you know, I think my example was Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. As long as there's some fucking old stereo system playing that in the ruins, there'll still be sadness in the universe. Hmm. The, the, the emotion hmm. is in the object already. The things hmm. that we think exist only in our heads are already out there. That's what music teaches me. But hmm. now we're getting really far away from Philip K. Dick. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, let's, but. so where do we go next? So I've, I wanted to jump straight to the heart of a, a philosophical idea that seemed to be impelling this sketch. But there are a number of other ideas that he develops. And Indeed, more than one sketch of this uncompleted novel. Right. So in this book of interviews with Gwen Lee, he is talking about a particular notion where a mediocre composer, he compares him to Burt Bacharach, which pissed me off because I'm a big Bacharach fan, but somebody that writes, you're, you're shaking your head sadly. Did I just shock you by saying that I love Burt Bacharach? No. Didn't shock Yo, me. Oh, yeah, I can, yeah, I can hear the lie in your voice. No, no you I'm just kidding. Like, you no, think I, less of me now. I don't. I know. Okay. I, think I, admire, gonna, I'm, I am going to go down with this ship. I, I am fucking. I admire Burt Bacharach. I, I admire him a lot. In fact, I have a an album, a collaboration he did with uh, Elvis Costello. Oh yeah, that's yeah. a good album. Yeah, it's a great album. So no, no, I was, I was just playing my part. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who likes all the normie shit. Okay, so, you know, he imagines this guy named Ed Firmley, who's a mediocre composer, just kind of a commercial musician who nobody takes particularly seriously, who listens to just a lot of light and undemanding music. He's not actually that interested in any kind of like, music as an art. And so this alien species decides to implant him with a biochip. And it's kind of funny because Philip K. Dick goes on for pages. He's like, no, man, biochips really exist, which they totally don't. No. Um, 
But uh, but he he liked to imagine that biochips existed and that you could basically upload an entire consciousness, like the consciousness of one of these aliens onto a biochip, stick the biochip in this guy's brain, you know, abduct him and knock him on the head and stick this biochip in his brain. And now he has an alien in his brain. And so he becomes a kind of a symbiote. And the reason the aliens are doing this is in order to experience music. Yeah, so that they can hear with Firmly's ears and they can experience that heart of music, that conceptual, abstract core of music that I was trying to get at at the beginning of this. That's what they're after. Not just some kind of transduced equivalent of music, but the thing that happens in a human mind when it's hearing music. Right, the the experience of of music. The subject, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and him pointing out that the experience of music is not the same as like the actual sounds, which is an interesting thought. So as... Dick develops this plot. He's like, well, the aliens realize at a certain point that they put themselves in kind of the wrong guy. It's this guy who listens to boring music. And after a while, the alien that's been implanted in him is, is bored. There's a great moment where he's describing the Ed Firmly. He's in his car and he's like going through the the, the radio channels looking for something to listen to. And he briefly stops at a station that's playing Bach or something. And then the aliens mm-hmm. are like, holy shit. And then he just tw- switches it to some jingle. To, to, to K-Joy. Yeah, K-Joy, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, and you can imagine the frustration. Like, so they're like no, oh, I want that. more of that. <laughs> so we have to teach this guy. <laughs> so it's like they have better musical taste than he does, which is funny because right. they don't know what music is. Anyways, yeah. But they know that this is somehow... Not it, right? So the idea is that they start feeding him mathematical ideas, and he has this enhanced ability to take those very abstract conceptual arrangements and turn them into sound. This idea of transduction of music into something or of something into music is an old idea of Philip K. Dix. He loved music, and one of his earliest stories is a story called The Preserving Machine, which is sort of the idea of, like, how would you preserve music against a nuclear war? Music is the most evanescent of arts. And so the scientist gets an idea of taking music and transcoding it into the DNA of animals. So he creates a machine that he'll put in, like, a Schubert leader, and out will pop, like, a little animal. Oh, wow. So so this is like an idea that Dick was playing with throughout his career. But anyway, so this idea of transcoding mathematics into music. And so firmly starts to, it's almost like Flowers for Algernon, like this guy who's who's really mediocre musician becomes like a genius Beethoven level musician as he becomes more and more thoroughly symbiotic with this biochip that's been implanted. Now, what happens in the end, there's a kind of a Faustian note that's introduced. And in the variant ideas of what the owl in daylight might have been, some of them which have nothing whatsoever to do with the plot scenario that I've been describing, nevertheless, that Faustian thing is always still there. That seems to be a common denominator, if not the common denominator of all the ideas that Dick had about the owl in daylight. Firmly at some point realizes that he's dying, like his frail human frame is not able to withstand the huge energies that are being created by this symbiosis. And the alien breaks kayfabe and yeah. contacts him, says basically like, you got to stop this or you're going to die. Like, you, I'll leave. Yeah. And you can go back to being the guy that you were before. And firmly knowing that he would have maybe only one more month to live 
decides that it's worth it for him to keep creating this great art that he's been creating, that he would rather die in a month and have a month more of this kind of creation than to live Go a back. long, yeah. happy and mediocre life. Yeah. And this for PKD is kind of the Faustian core of this story. Yes. There's a couple of sources he keeps bringing up in these interviews as his models for this book that he wanted to write. One is Faust. One is Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Right. And of course, the life of Beethoven, because I think he was fascinated with the idea that Beethoven's last pieces were written when Beethoven was essentially deaf. Right. Oh, completely deaf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, completely deaf. Right. So he, he, he was writing music that he himself couldn't hear and for. Dick, that kind of, for me, it kind of evokes the idea of this species that loves music but can't hear it. Um, My sense from the interviews is that he was really hoping to create his kind of magnum opus, right? His his Finnegan's Wake or whatever. It was a big book, as we mentioned last time, because this is our second attempt at recording this episode. No, No point in hiding that. The challenge was somehow conveying, I think, the idea that you so skillfully and adeptly outlined for us at the beginning, this idea of this pure, abstract, creative power that he's trying to convey through this book. I think that because it was so difficult for him to do that, he came up with a bunch of different plots, all under the title The Owl in Daylight, hoping to get this right. And I think my sense is that ultimately the story you just told about the alien species and the color and the sound and all that was actually going to be one part of something bigger that we'll get to. Yeah, but that's just yeah. my own theory as to what he, his plan was. He ended up not writing the book. It's not just because he died. I think he gave up on the book because he refers to Owl in the past tense and the exegesis saying, well, that's what I was trying to do with Owl. Like as he's put yeah. it behind him. Again, I think that this book was for him the way to complete, I'm sure you'll agree with this, the process that began in 74 for him with the the February experience, right? Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. The series of, of synchronistic slash mystical or uh, transformative experiences he had at that time. They were like really intense. Theophanic. And theophanic is the word. And of course, Vallis and everything he wrote from that moment on was tr- him trying to make sense of this. And, and the exegesis, which is an 8,000 page, I believe, like a journal he kept writing throughout the last years of his life, were likewise an attempt to try to understand what had happened to him. I think that this book would have been maybe the capstone of all that. And maybe in its fragmentariness, again, like Heraclitus, maybe it was the capstone. Maybe the book exists more than we think it exists. (laughs) At least that's what we're going to try to find out today. After Vallis and after the transmigration of Timothy Archer, which I think is his last actual book, there's this project, this unexecuted project. And because he left so many different sketches for different ideas, some of them that seem to be absolutely contradictory to one another, it almost seemed like you could 
turn it into a choose your own adventure book? Like, can we imagine what the project was of which these different sketches, these different not coordinated, perhaps incoherent sketches, it's there's some center that they represent. Mm-hmm. Um, and could we figure what, what that is in conversation? But the other side of it also is just like Orges and Stanislav Lam and doubtless other writers made something of a practice of writing short stories that purported to be reviews of books, but like books that didn't exist. So Borges' story, The Approach to Alt-Mutasim, for example, takes the form of a review of a novel that never existed. So you have everything that the novel is trying to do, but it's presented in a very condensed form. So you so you don't actually have to read a novel. You can just read the short story that projects holographically a novel that doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist yet. I love those because... I've always felt there are certain books that I left on the shelf for a long time because I knew that the book that existed in my mind, my expectation of it, how I imagined that book would play out if I read it was more interesting, I knew, than what the book actually contained. Or at least I I had suspected that what I imagined would be better than what it contained. Um, let's, Let's talk about the title, actually, because I think there's two things. We need to talk about the other main narrative that he developed, yeah. the one that has nothing to do with what you just um, summarized, and also the meaning of the title, which I thought was interesting. Because the title, yeah. The Owl in Daylight, it's an expression he heard on television, he says. Some person who lived in the Ozarks used it to signify the situation of not knowing what you're looking at. Like an owl yeah. it has a, a hyper-developed visual apparatus for seeing in the dark, but in the daytime, it's basically blind. So to be an owl in daylight is to be equipped for a world that you happen not to be in at that moment. <laughs> you happen yeah. to be in a world yeah. you're not equipped to experience properly. So you don't know what's going on. But if only the, the light would fall, if only the circumstances would change, you would see with perfect clarity. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The alien and Ed Firmly are both owls in daylight. Each one of them is occluded, to use PKD's favorite word, Yeah, you know, blinded. Each one of them is blinded in a different way. The idea is that this alien species is able to experience color on a level that's almost inconceivable to us, that by comparison, we're like moles or deep sea fishes that are practically blind. And so in the alien world, Ed Firmly is an owl in daylight. And likewise, though, in our world, the alien is an owl in daylight. But this idea of symbiosis is very important, and it spills over into some of the other sketches, the idea of there being a mind composed of two two minds and minds of fundamentally different character. Calls it Dithion. Yeah. The other main version of this non-existent novel that he came up with, the one that he summarizes in that letter to his editor, is a completely different story. This is a story set in the future in which a scientist designs an amusement park that replicates Burbank, California in the 50s and 60s. Is that it? Or Berkeley. I can't remember which. Yeah. It begins with a B. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. So basically reproduces this world. And the scientist enlists this phenomenal AI to kind of manage the amusement park. But the AI is very resentful about that because it believes that it was made to do greater things than that. And so it decides to trap the scientist in his own amusement park in the body of a teenage boy and make him forget 
who he was. Then then the novel is the story of this scientist who doesn't know he's a scientist in the body of this adolescent growing up. And this kind of a, I got, I got this sense of a kind of coming of age story, but of course mm. he's forgotten who what's really going on. And meanwhile, his sister is trying to communicate to him from the real world, trying to get him to remember who he is and work his way out of this maze. But the scientist, of course, is unable to hear her clearly. Everything is filtered through the the kind of substance of this world. So everything is kind of cryptic and weird, and he's trying to figure it out. And the maze or the AI is generating new versions of the world according to the scientist's actions so that the scientist is moving up and down on this vertical axis between a kind of Dantesque the cosmology of Inferno, Paradiso, and Purgatory is moving through these three realms, and his past changes as he switches planes, and and we as as readers are able to see all this, but of course he is the owl in daylight. He doesn't know what's going on, um, right. and the whole trick is that he has to fulfill a series of missions or pass a series of tests and kind of more, almost like a Herculean Presented fashion. with like ethical quandaries. Ethical, a- yeah, exactly. There's a TV show called The Good Place that has a similar plot point in one of its episodes where it's like basically like reality is a simulator, a reality simulator where you're constantly having to choose between like a sweet old lady on one train track and a bunch of orphans on another track or some shit. And you have to direct the train to one of those tracks and which one do you do and blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's at least the impression I get from looking at these materials. Moral quandaries, one after another. And he, he has to work his way through these and work his way up to Paradiso where he can finally be get popped out of the maze and out of the machine again. So that was the other version. And my impression from the last piece that we read, the one that we you'd forgotten to include in the original package and you sent me later... Yeah. My impression or my theory is that the story of Ed Firmley, the composer, would have been one of the planes on the vertical axis that the character would have had to go through in that book about the amusement park. But I'm not sure if that's true. Because in fact, the interview about the alien species and Ed Firmley, he gave that after, I think, he wrote to his editor about yeah. Yeah, the amusement park. So it had already, he might have jettisoned that idea at that point. Who knows? Let's see. What's it called? The Selected Letters of Philip K. Dick, Volume 6, 1980 to 1982. Trolling through these letters, this is this letter to his editor, David Hartwell, from July 14th, 1981. And here he is, he's following up on an earlier letter where he described the plot that J.F. just described. And here he's saying that he wants to laminate my two sci-fi ideas together to form one ultra-complex novel. And in this later letter to David Hartwell, he's trying to explain how he thinks he can put these different ideas together, which does suggest what you're saying, JF, that he wanted to create a kind of summa, a kind of grand synthesis of all the ideas that he had been playing with ever since February and March of 1974 when he was blackjacked by theophanies. So the two ideas that he wants to fuse, one is the idea of a double psyche entity, which we've already described, and the other idea being what he calls three coaxial worlds generated by a computer, and this is the idea that he had coughed up in his previous letter to Hartwell, with a switching back and forth between these worlds, which represent the three levels of Dante's Commedia, you know, right. hell, heaven, and purgatory. 
My fusion of the above will be as follows. The human psyche sees the middle realm, Purgatorio. Oh, yeah, this part. <laughs> the alien psyche, perceiving reality, perceives inferno. However, when the two psyches combine into what I call Dytheon, a two-chambered ultramind, together, as a single entity, they see Paradiso. So here you can see this idea of, like, what is Paradiso and how do you attain it, being instead of that kind of training simulation idea from the earlier letter. Now he's thinking about it as something that's accessible through the sort of symbiosis that he's mentioning in the long interview with Gwen Lee. Right. The crucial element that the computer supplies is that it has the power to switch this two-psyche entity from the left, human, to right, alien, to combined, Dytheon. The creature is under its control and therefore cannot on its own select which world it experiences. That is, it cannot control its left-right balance nor on its own achieve bilateral parity, a fusion of conceptual fields and hence world. Thus, I show world as based on the psyche perceiving world. Change the psyche and you change the world. Combine the two psyches and you get a wholly new world. Now, that is interesting yeah. because he's suggesting a kind of non-dualism, that the mind is not simply the passive recorder of reality, but by the transformation of mind from this kind of dialectic of alien and or computer and human minds into a new mind. You, you, you essentially get paradise from that. It's like that yes, Buddhist yeah, saying yeah. that samsara and, is nirvana, right? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. So yeah. there's a passage in the exegesis which kind of reiterates this or summarizes it nicely. He writes, dio, the Greek word for division, dio. Th he writes, this means that as I intended to say an owl, when you think you are out of the maze, i.e. saved, you are in fact still in it. You only actually get out when you seem to be out, think you are out, and voluntarily decide to return. So you can see here how he's trying to take this idea that the, the duality needs to be embraced as such in order to be transcended. That you need to yes. realize that the world is an illusion, but I will stay within it. The bodhisattva vow, right? This idea that you right. will stay in this illusion because this illusion in some weird sense is the ultimate reality. Exactly. Um, yeah. Precisely. So he's trying to work his way to that kind of mystical thing. Uh, I mean, it seemed to me that when he wrote that letter that you just read from, mm -hmm. he had conceptually achieved his end in a way. I find that, especially with fiction, if I know what it is I'm doing conceptually, then I can't really write it. It seems like he killed the story by thinking so much about it that in the end he d didn't need to be written anymore. Yeah. You know, who knows what, what happened, but he certainly is a writer who thinks a lot about the concepts. There's a great moment in the interview with Lee where he says, uh, she asks him a question. It's like, well, how do they get from A to B? How does that happen in the story? And he's like, what? Oh, that's just a plot problem. Like for him, fiction was a tool for doing philosophy, uh, clearly. Yeah. And like plot was just the secondary thing. Like who cares? It's like you're pointing out the bad punctuation in my thesis. Like who gives yeah. a shit? Read what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. For him, plot was purely a framing device for these ideas. And that's not taking anything away from his fiction. It's just, it just gives us some insight into to what extent Philip K. Dick was writing for his life, I think. Was really he and even in yeah. terms of and he wasn't just interested 
in philosophy for philosophy's sake. He really was trying to write his way out of hell. And um, absolutely. And philosophy for him was the latter for climbing out of that abyss, climbing out of the abyss or climbing out of the maze. You yeah, know, right. this is this is yet another leitmotif. So like when we're going through the owl materials and trying to hypothesize some kind of common core such that we would be able to imagine what the finished book would be, which, by the way, is a fool's errand. There's no way we're going to be able to accomplish that. Well, uh, we wouldn't even know if we did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but we can have fun trying. Yeah. One of the things that happens when you're looking through these materials is you become very attuned to kind of conceptual leitmotifs or philosophical leitmotifs, ideas that come up again and again. And one idea that comes up again and again in the passage from the exegesis that you just read, but also in Vallis and also, I think in the owl materials, is the idea of reality as a maze. Yes. It's well known that Philip K. Dick came up with the term the black iron prison to describe a kind of Gnostic idea of reality that we're trapped in. We're trapped in this kind of reality that's been created by some blind, mad demiurge. And we are occluded and we don't see what's true. And he called that the black iron prison. But the figure he often uses, though, as an alternative to that is the maze. Yeah, a maze of death. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes up in, for example, Vallis. So I'm looking at, well, it's page 40 of this particular edition. This is the third chapter of Vallis. In this, he is, he being Philip K. Dick, the narrator of a story involving horse lover Fett, who's an alternate version of Philip K. Dick. It gets very metafictional and weird. But the narrator, Philip K. Dick, is thinking through one of the lines that he actually developed in his exegesis that he imported into Vallis. Vallis contains a lot of excerpts from the exegesis. This line, the mind is not talking to us, but by means of us. Its narrative passes through us and its sorrow infuses us irrationally. As Plato discerned, there is a streak of the irrational in the world's soul. And so you remember when we were talking about Mothman and there was this one line, you know, the Mothman prophecies, and there's this one line that concludes that book. It's uh, actually a quote from Charles Fort. If there is a universal mind, must it be sane? Mm -hmm. And Dick is sort of dealing with the idea that the nature of the world we're in is a maze. It's a crazy maze because the mind that created this world is not sane. Yeah. And so he kind of cogitates on this for a couple of paragraphs and then says there was no way out. He's talking about horse lover fat. There was no way out for horse lover fat to figure out how to get himself out of the maze. The interlocking between the defective instrument and the defective subject produced another perfect Chinese finger trap. When he says Chinese finger trap, that's another figure. For, like, how do you get out of the maze that trying to get out of the maze means that you're all the more stuck in the maze? The only yeah. way out of the maze is to actually seek to get back in. Yeah. The more you try, it's like quicksand. The more you try to get out, the more you sink, right? Yeah. Um, so a Chinese yeah. finger trap, which is a kind of novelty that you used to see. I haven't seen one of those things in years. Um, it works that way. The more you pull, the more the, it closes on your finger. Caught in his own maze, I'm continuing to quote from the book. Caught in his own maze like Daedalus, who built the labyrinth for King Minos of Crete and then fell into it and couldn't get out. Presumably Daedalus is still there, and so are we. The only difference between us and horse lover Fat is that Fat knows his situation and we do not. Therefore, Fat is insane and we are normal. There is no route out of the maze. 
the maze shifts as you move through it because it is alive. And here he quotes from Richard Wagner's great mystical final opera, Parsifal, where Parsifal says to Gurnemont, I move but a little, yet already I seem to have gone far. And Gurnemont says, you see, my son, here time turns into space. And the light motive of Parsifal, whatever it is that Parsifal represents, Parsifal's endless wandering in the maze. The fool uh, of Christ. Right. Yeah, the fool of Christ. Right. This he describes idea... in one part. Sorry to interact, but in one, oh uh, no no no, uh, one part of the in his exegesis, he he talks about owl. He's referring to the character from his non-existent novel as owl. He says owl is a fool, a fool of Christ, and this is a call back to a, a, a tradition within Christianity which doesn't exist so much anymore about these kind of like uh, mad llamas almost like you'd find in Tibet these homeless mendicant saints who would wander about doing awful things breaking every ethical code in order to wake people up to the reality of of God that tradition continued into the 19th century in, in Russia even the 20th I think but anyways that's the point being that Parsifal is kind of that character and he's kind of portraying us as that kind of protagonist that we're lost in this maze we're fools but we somehow know it we somehow our foolishness is itself the key Somewhere else he writes, the madman speaks the moral of the piece, that you kind of have to go mad in order to see what's actually going on in this world. And that, as you say, Philip K. Dick is writing his life here. There's a passage in the interviews with Gwen Lee that I find kind of haunting, actually. So recall that in the musical version, the Ed Firmly version of The Owl in Daylight, recall that Firmly is faced with a conundrum either live a very shortened life as a genius composer or a long, healthy, happy life as a mediocrity. And he chooses the short but meaningful life. And this is on page 120, 121 of the interview book, What If Our World Is There Heaven? Final Conversations of Philip K. Dick. He says, now we get into what for me in a way is the most profound part of this projected novel. The fact that the pressure being exerted on the host brain by the biochip is beginning to kill the brain, literally. And elsewhere, he's talking about the effort that he made in writing The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which was his last completed novel. He's saying, by the time I got to finishing that novel, I was subsisting on a diet of like caffeine and amphetamines or some shit. Like, I forget what he says, but basically like he was badly mistreating his body. His blood pressure was soaring. It almost killed him. And he says, I'm actually kind of afraid of writing this book because I have a feeling that if I write it, it will kill me. Right. And so, you know, you were saying like, maybe he realized he didn't need to write it. On the evidence of this conversation, he also feared it. And so for him, this Faustian question, like after, it is absolutely true that after 1974, something happened to his writing. He was never the greatest prose stylist. Even his most ardent fans would probably tell you that. In his earlier novels, a lot of the prose style is function only. It's the thing that allows him to get to what he really cares about, which is the philosophical ideas. You can see new characters like okay one thing he never had a decent female character ever and then his last novel you know his best character ever is angel archery and he experienced this it's like 
that he was transformed, that whatever it was that happened to him, being hit by the pink laser and, you know, having visions of existing simultaneously in two different epochs at the same time and all this weird shit that happened to him, he had this feeling that whatever it was, and of course, he never figured out what it was. He never stopped trying to investigate this and write down his investigations in the exegesis. Whatever it was, he felt that it fundamentally changed his brain that it transformed him, that some alien invasion of his mind happened and that he was transformed into an artist capable of greater things than he was capable of, if that makes any sense. Like in this interview, he talks about how Angel Archer is smarter than him. He's like, how, yeah. how can I have created a character that's smarter than me? But she is. She uses words I don't know. She has a sense of humor that's a bit over my head. Like, you know, we're talking about philosophical or conceptual leitmotifs that come back again and again in the post-74 materials and particularly the, the owl materials. One of them is the possibility of getting kind of something from nothing, of a human being being able to create something beyond what they can actually do themselves. And so this whole idea of symbiosis, of the biochip or Dytheon, these are different figures for something that he felt happening to him. Oh, yeah, that absolutely. What he was doing as a writer was no longer like just him. There was some kind of you know, plasmate or something, some kind of intelligence that had infused him. And he was creating things that were over his own head. And he also had a feeling that the intensity of this was killing him. He had a strong feeling that he was being drained by this and yeah. yet faced with the same possibility that faces Ed Firmly, he, like Firmly, chooses the sort of Faustian move, which is like even knowing that this intelligence he's accessing is leading him closer to death, it's still worth it. Yeah, uh, and, right. you know, this comes out very clearly, hold on, looking up uh, on page 128 of What If Our World Is There Heaven. Actually, he says one very interesting thing that corresponds to something we've said a number of times on the show, especially of late. He talks about a particularly horrible low point in his life, and he says, God save me from another night like that, but God damn it, had I not lived out that night drinking and crying and reading and hurting, I would never have been born, truly born. That was the time of my birth into the real world. And the real world for me is a mixture of pain and beauty. And this is the correct view of it, because these are the components that make up reality. And so he's like talking about what it is to really throw yourself on the fire, to throw yourself on the fire of existence, which is a compound of pain and beauty, and that you can't pick and choose. You just have to dig it all. You have to open yourself to it at all. And a little bit later, he says, okay, now see, this theme carries on into the next book. He means the Alan Daylight. Is that this guy has risen, this human, Ed Firmly, has risen to this this ecstatic artistic vision in terms of his own culture, his own civilization, music, but has killed himself doing it. 
Now, this is the paradigm of Faust. Faust reaches into a godlike realm, grasps this thing and brings it back, but dies at the very moment that his hand closes on it. He both simultaneously gets what he's looking for and dies. Death and victory become one event for the Faustian man. Very Christological of him, right? Yes. Uh, the idea that death in itself is the victory. Yeah. Going back to this idea that he felt he was, and I think it's fair to say that it's very quite possible that he was seized by this alien consciousness in 74 that then kind of dictated his work to him in a weird way or influenced him in the same way that those deaf and mute aliens end up symbiotically working with uh, Ed Firmly. Do you remember the episode we did last year about Carl Jung's take on artistic creation? The, yeah. The essay on the relation of uh, analytical psychology to poetry. Well, I mean, Jung would argue, in fact, does argue in that essay that this seizing of the artist by an alien intelligence is precisely what happens in all artistic creation that's worth its salt, right? Like, yeah. So you could, I guess, you could argue that Philip K. Dick suddenly realized that, as Jung says there about the artist who believes he is in control in that essay, he says that all along he was drifting on these alien currents, but he didn't know it. And in fact, the themes that he develops after 74 are obviously themes that were very interesting to him before 74. Right. He never, it's not like there was a sudden change in his fiction. It's not like he was writing like Paul Auster style New York dramas and then suddenly went into science fiction. He was always on that track, but it's like he suddenly became aware that there's an alien presence in writing. And I guess I would theorize that only a science fiction author could have experienced that the way he did. Because one of the things about Philip K. Dick is that he was always trying to rationalize or explain to himself that which he initially perceived as unexplainable or irrational. He was yes. always trying to fit it into a model, which is exactly what science fiction does. The essence of science fiction is the absolutization of the principle of sufficient reason. Like hmm. science fiction is the idea that everything is ultimately fundamentally rational. I'm writing a piece on that right now called, I started it a year ago and I put it aside when the pandemic started. And now I'm just picking it up again, finally called Groundwork for Philosophy of Magic, which is all about the difference between fantasy and science fiction from a philosophical point of view. Uh, but what he discovers in the end is that wonderful passage that you read. You should probably read it, some of it again. Yeah. Uh, last time we tried to record this, which is that it's precisely in realizing the futility of this attempt to explain things that one finally explains them. That yeah. the explanation is in the futility of the need to explain that mm. it's some, it's exactly what he was saying in that quote, that Dio quote, where it's not when you realize that everything's an illusion, that you're free from the illusion. It's when you think it might be an illusion and you decide to stay anyway. Yeah. It's this weird kind of like towards the end of the exegesis passages that we read for this, he writes, uh, um, very succinctly, he writes, the solution is one, impossible, and two, a causal. So when he says the solution is a causal, he's saying that 
ultimately, it is not in the discourse of science fiction that we can find this answer. Science fiction itself has to kind of become a kind of mode of fantasy. We have to accept that at some level, there's something a-causal going on, something that relates to what you and I uh, mean when we talk about the second spear, the fifth cause, the weird occasioning of things that mm. you can't reduce down to just another rational cause. Yeah, I guess you could say, well, Philip K. Dick is the chosen writer because he was chosen by Zebra or the Pink Light or that alien entity to become the messenger of this truth. Or you could say that Philip K. Dick is doing what artists do, but doing it in such a way that we can see, just like I was saying at the beginning, that music isn't so much different as constituted in such a way as to make us see what art in general is like. Mm, mm. Uh, maybe Philip K. Dick's ordeal and his literary output post-1974 is telling us something about artistic creation in a more general sense, that there's always another player in the room. There's always this alien thing, this teeming thing that's coming through art communicating to us, wanting to somehow manifest itself in this world for reasons that may be not even explainable or rational in any way. And this idea of sacrifice that's baked into this Faustian idea is just like you are willing to sacrifice yourself for that emergence, that that emergence is more important than your own skin. Right, because it's what gives value to existence, right? So like doing it is bad, going through with it is bad, but not doing it would be worse because then there wouldn't even be a point to the suffering. Mm. It's like, mm. it's like in a way it's like art or he says pain and beauty are what constitutes reality. So when you choose to continue to create despite the pain, you're choosing beauty. You're recognizing the other side of reality, which is the beauty side. So you're allowing beauty to exist. If you give up on creating beauty because it causes you pain, then there's only pain left. Mm. It's because obviously existence is going to be painful even if you stop writing. So like it's, it's just you're just stuck in a literally a Chinese finger trap. But the magic is that when you choose to stay, when you take that bodhisattva vow and choose to stay in pain, even though you fully acknowledge that it is inherently, inextricably pain, somehow the pain becomes beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And this puts the idea of sacrifice right at the center of what art is, what it is to be right. an artist. That the, yeah. the proper job of the artist is not to create, but to sacrifice. Point out for those listeners who don't know what we mean when we talk about the bodhisattva ideal. In Buddhism, the original idea, the earlier idea that we associate with Theravadin Buddhism is the idea of getting off the wheel of suffering, the endless wheel of rebirth where we're just constantly put back into a world of suffering of samsara. 
and the idea of the Buddha's enlightenment being the thing that picks the lock, gets you off this crazy wheel, and uh, you become enlightened, and then you're, you're done. You're done with this journey. The bodhisattva ideal is the idea that you become enlightened, but instead of going into nirvana, you choose to go back into samsara. In fact, the bodhisattva vow is that I will be last, that at the end of time, as we're all shuffling one by one into nirvana, I will be the last. I will escort everybody out first. Now, as my old teacher, Shohaka Okumura, pointed out, this is ridiculous on its face, inconceivable, because for one thing, every person who took the bodhisattva vow will be stuck at the end of time saying, after you, no, after you. <laughs> but it's a koan, you know, and this is a, an important koan if you're a Mahayana Buddhism, because this bodhisattva ideal is the thing that sets Mahayana, the somewhat later version of Buddhism, off from the Theravadin or the way of the elders. And I'm going into this detail to talk about this kind of idea of, you were saying that it's a very Christic idea, that this idea that death and victory are one for the Faustian creator. But it's also very Buddhist, and there is this idea of sacrifice at the heart of mm -hmm. Mahayana Buddhism, just as it is in Christianity. And the sacrifice is that you sacrifice yourself to the real. Yeah. You make a sacrifice of yourself to the real in all of its suffering and pain and confusion and stupidity, but also its beauty. The term in Christology and theology here in the West, one of the ways it's phrased is that Christ emptied himself into the world. To empty yourself means not to keep any cards for yourself, to just completely give yourself over to the real, to whatever process you are in order to create something. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could argue that the same process is at work, not just in art, but in anything worth doing in life. Right. Certainly any truly altruistic endeavor people who give themselves over to the other completely, people like, I don't know, Mother Teresa, you know, the saint. Yeah. Um, you could probably argue also in a Machinesque way that the great sinner is doing something similar, but that's another story. But to empty yourself into the world, not to maintain the illusion that there is some kind of reservoir in you that contains some essence that is not part of the world, completely give yourself over to that process yep. and accept the world as it is, the good and the bad, as partaking in something that transcends them both, something like paradiso, right? Right. It's kind of beautiful. And this brings me to what for me is the most beautiful passage in, certainly in Dick's exegesis and possibly in all of his writing. I find it deeply moving because it's about this. And what it suggests is this sacrifice, this giving, this emptying of the self. It's not like a gift. It's not reified. It's not a thing. Like uh, you imagine a gift under the Christmas tree all wrapped up with a bow. It's a process. It's the action of your life the doing. So think about the central problem of the last eight years of Philip K. Dick's life. What the fuck happened to me in February and March of 1974? The whole vast project of the exegesis, to say nothing of all of the novels that he wrote after 1974, all of that was directed at the goal of explaining what happened to him. And if you read the exegesis, you realize that 
he, you know, it's actually very treacherous, as we said in our Philip K. Dick episode, to say what it was that Philip K. Dick, quote unquote, really thought, because he entertained one day after another, one theory after another, as many as stars in the sky, as Philip K. Dick himself says, endless profusion of theories. And each day would start with him demolishing the theories of the day before, because he could always find the fault in every theory that he came up with to explain what had happened to him. And this amazing passage of the exegesis, this happened to him in 1980. So towards the end of his life, he died at the beginning of 1982. And it's remarkable because actually what's weird is that there are no accounts in the exegesis of the events of 2-3-1974. He started writing the exegesis in the months afterwards. And so he's always alluding to conversations he had with people or like things that happened. There's hardly any actual account of theophanic experience in the exegesis, but this letter appears to be an experience of similar magnitude as the events of 1974 that happened to him late in life in 1980. And I'm going to read you substantial parts of this. This is fairly long, but I think it's important because it really sets up this thing that we were talking about, like sacrifice and the sacrifice of your life, not your life considered as a completed thing, an entity, an object, a gift wrapped up under the Christmas tree, but as a process. And that for every moment of your life, every moment of your process is the struggle. Every moment of it is the gift. So he writes, God manifested himself to me as the infinite void, but it was not the abyss. It was the vault of heaven with blue sky and wisps of white clouds. He was not some foreign God, but the God of my fathers. He was loving and kind, and he had a personality. He said, I am the infinite. I will show you. Where I am, infinity is. Where infinity is, there I am. Construct lines of reasoning by which to understand your experience in 1974. I will enter the field against their shifting nature. You think they are logical, but they are not. They are infinitely creative. I thought a thought, and then an infinite regression of theses and counter-theses came into being. God said, here I am, here is infinity. I thought another explanation, and again, an infinite series of thoughts split off in dialectical, antithetical interaction. God said, here is infinity, here I am. I thought then an infinite number of explanations in succession that explained 2374. Each single one of them yielded up an infinite progression of flip-flops, of thesis and antithesis forever. Each time God said, here is infinity, here then I am. Then he said, Every thought leads to infinity, does it not? Find one that doesn't. I tried forever. All led to an infinitude of regress, of the dialectic, of thesis, antithesis, and new synthesis. Each time God said, here is infinity, here am I, try again. I tried forever. Always it ended with God saying, infinity and myself, I am here. All roads, all explanations for 2374 lead to an infinity of yes, no, this or that, on, off, one, zero, yin, yang, the dialectic, infinity upon infinity, and infinities of infinities. I am everywhere and all roads lead to me. All roads lead to God. Try again. Think of another possible explanation for 2374. I did. 
It led to an infinity of regress, of thesis and antithesis and new synthesis. Uh, at one point, God quotes a poem, Brahma, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. They reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings, I am the doubter and the doubt. And God says to PKD, you are not the doubter, you are the doubt itself. So do not try to know, you cannot know. After a while, it becomes almost comic as PKD keeps doing what he does throughout the exegesis, his manic creative mind coughing up one hypothesis after another and negating them almost as quickly because God is infinite and is, and he says to PKD, is this infinity? Yes. Then there's your answer. The only one you will ever have, God said. And then PKD turns around and says, you could be pretending to be God and actually be Satan. Another infinitude of thesis and antithesis and new synthesis, the infinite regress was set off. God said, infinity. I said, you could be testing out a logic system in a giant computer and I am, again, an infinite regress. Infinity, God said. Will it always be infinite? I said, an infinity? Try further, God said. I doubt if you exist, I said, and the infinite regress instantly flew into motion once more. I will play this game forever, God said, or until you become tired. I said, I will find a thought, an explanation, a theory that does not set off an infinite regress. And as soon as I said that, an infinite regress was set off. And it just keeps going and going and going like this. And finally, the end, which I find quite moving. This is my punishment, I said. This is Philip K. Dick talking. This is my punishment, I said, that I play, that I try to discern if it was you in March of 1974. And the thought came instantly, my punishment or my reward, which? And an infinite series of theses and antithesis was set off. Infinity, God said. Play again. What was my crime, I said, that I am compelled to do this? Or your deed of merit, God said. I don't know, I said. God said, because you are not God. But you know, I said. Or maybe you don't know and you're trying to find out. And an infinite regress was set off. Infinity, God said. Play again. I am waiting. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.